everybody welcome to the second episode in our history series this time i'm joined again by john from defense bulletin we are going to be looking at great britain in the lead up to the first world war this is going to be a two-part look into great britain we didn't have enough time to get through it all so that's why we're doing a second part later on that should be coming soon before we get started here, check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Please consider supporting us on Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Substack. You can find all those links in the show notes below that helps us out a lot we appreciate all the support that you guys send us and if you support us on any of those platforms you get some perks as well again those links are in the show notes below and with that being said we'll get started okay everybody i'm here with john from defense bulletin how's it going man going great good to be here so we're doing the second episode of our uh, history series looking at the major players in World War One, like a pre-war kind of look. And today we are doing Great Britain. Um, and I am doing a lot better than I am the last time we did this because the last time we did this, I had like some disgusting coconut lime beer that I got from Trader Joe's that I knew I was going to hate. <laughs> I knew I, mean, I was known. going to fucking hate it, and it was, like, worse than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I think you should have known better than to buy beer from Trader Joe's. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I went there, and I know a lot of people that work at the one, like, in my town, so I just kind of bullshit with them. Like, one of my buddies works here, and I've known him since I was, like, eight. Yeah. Right? So I was like, yeah, whatever. I just I was bullshitting with them, and I figured, like, I'll make my own four-pack, Um, and I didn't want to get, like, all IPAs, you know, which I don't even really like IPAs anyway, but that's, like... All they got yeah. besides that nasty ass coconut lime beer. <laughs> so I gave it a shot and I hated it. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked like it was nasty too. Just the can, it was too colorful, too it's much. Disgusting, going on. dude. It was like yeah. the aftertaste was like a, like a pina colada, like Slurpee from 7 Eleven. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. That's like not if it. you're drinking a pina colada Slurpee, like that's fine, you know, but for a beer, not so much. No. Yeah. Anyway, I'm doing a lot better now. Now I have a German Pilsner, so I'll take, I'll take oh, that. Can't go wrong with those. No, no. Yeah. Nice, respectable beer. Yeah. <laughs> no off the wall shit. Oh. All right, so let's uh, let's just jump in with Great Britain. Um, by the time that World War One comes around in 1914, you guys have probably heard this before. It could be said that the sun never set on the British Empire. People say that a lot because it's true. Uh, British Empire was was uh huge as some may say it was pretty big the empire had a quarter of the world's population about 41 million people in uh great britain proper and then about 450 million people uh in the empire's territorial possessions uh so that's about a quarter of the world's population and also a quarter of the world's landmass as well so definitely um a lot of territory to cover uh, the British merchant fleet as well accounted for a little bit over 50% of global tonnage uh, by 1900. The UK at this point is fairly young. 40% of its population are under the age of 20 by 1900. And from 1870 to 1900, span of 30 years, the literacy rate jumps from 40% to 97%. And that's thanks in part to free public education Public education, I'm sorry, education in general was mandatory uh, up until the age of 14 in the UK around this time. And this also results in uh, media and information boom, particularly in the press and newspapers as well. Oh, yeah. Just one thing to add into there, right, is so that it's kind of the a lot of different movements, right? We saw things with strikes and other things like this. Um, what, kind of what you just mentioned, right, the, the increase in nationalism and other things like that. It, and I think we mentioned this as well. Uh, you're going to see this common theme across most of these great powers um, as you, as nationalism grows. Uh, it, rights for the layman or the everyday man kind of increase. So we start to see things like the women's suffragette movement um, and not talking about the, the one in the United States, but which is most people familiar with, but the one in uh, Great Britain. Um, 
we start to see that. We start to see strikes become a big thing. Um, obviously, in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, strikes became synonymous with communism, but that's a whole other thing. Um, yeah, so so just a quick uh, quick uh, piggybacking off of that. Yeah, the uh, you know Britain was the first country to industrialize. What that's where the industrial revolution began, uh, about late eighteenth century kind of time frame. So Britain is is well ahead of its peers. Um, in that regard, right, you had a pretty large uh, union membership. I believe it was somewhere, uh, somewhere around the number of two million uh, union members in Great Britain around 1900. Um, trade union membership from 1910 to 1914 actually rose 66 percent, and then in the Great Unrest of 1910, 1911. Uh, you have over 10 million workdays lost to strikes. You kind of brought that up a minute ago. And then also around this time frame, 1900-ish, Britain is actually trailing uh, the U.S. and Germany in terms of wage growth and production. So even though they got a you know pretty big head start uh, in comparison to the rest of Europe and the U.S. in terms of industrialization, they're kind of falling behind uh, around the point that World War I comes around. But British Britain is still, you know, a major force to be reckoned with. They're a major player. They have the largest navy in the world at this point, uh, which had been the case for quite some time. Although the navy is dated and it desperately needed modernization, the German navy is actually becoming a major threat to Britain's naval dominance. Germany saw Britain as a foe due to its alliances with France and Russia. We'll get into that probably next episode, as well as its command of regional sea lanes. Britain also had relative dominance over global commerce and finance uh, with the pound as the global standard around the world. Yeah, and so one, one thing to mention, you just mentioned the sea lanes, right, which I think is real important. Uh, we'll also get into the Crimean War. That is a very big uh, chunk of pre-war Britain. So we want to uh, have, have make sure we focus on that correctly. So that'll be in the next episode as well. But um. You know, we, we saw them utilize this kind of uh, naval supremacy, uh, especially in the Korean, uh, almost the Korean War, the Crimean War, um, uh, you know, how they blockaded Russia. Um, and then they, they used their uh, massive overmatch in naval power against Russia. Um, and so, you know, obviously they, they were going to attempt to use this against Germany. And like you said before, Germany was seeking to match this naval, um, you know, this naval power. Um, and uh, obviously we'll see uh, later on if they were able to do this. I mean, many of you already know. But um, we're able to see, you know, how and why they weren't necessarily able to. Um, and then, you know, also the United States plays into this, right? Um, you know, things like uh, America's Navy is growing out at an exponential rate as well. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, um, you know, we have things like the White Fleet, you know, which is kind of like a big moment in, in U.S. naval history. Um, uh, and, that, you know, that, you know, uh, kind of opening up other countries. The idea that I'm going to park a, a fleet of battleships uh, or dreadnoughts, sorry. Um, you know, outside your ports, and then that'll open your country up to trade with mine, right? But you know, we yeah, saw gum, gumbo diplomacy. Gumbo, is, yeah, thank you. You know, not it's only still... not only an American thing by any means. You know, we'll probably exactly. get into this a little bit this episode, and next episode as well. But that's you know certainly a common theme with the British as well, and then the French too. You know, whenever we yeah, get exactly. into that episode, the thing is, gumbo diplomacy is seen as an American thing because of things like the White Fleet and stuff. You know, we're taught this in school. Yeah, at least if you're listening and you're yeah, from like United. the Panama Canal and all that. Exactly. Yeah, but you know, Great Britain has been as utilizing this type of gunboat diplomacy, or you could call frigate diplomacy, or twenty-one gun ship diplomacy, whatever you want to call it. But I mean, they've been utilizing this this tactic and this strategy for hundreds of years now, um, utilizing their navy. Um, very early on, uh, you know, if we're gonna short tangent, right? The um, one of the first kings um, of uh, of England, you know, uh, like early when the, when their name sounded like. Um, uh, I don't want to say heathen, but that's what they called him back then. Um, but, you know, when Wessex was kind of the only, you know, the king of Wessex, um, Ethelred, I believe his name was, he focused on the Navy uh, very extensively. And that's kind of where supposedly the birth of the Royal Navy, if you not officially, right, but the that's where they kind of get their Navy prowess from, because from the very beginning, uh, his, yeah, modern historiography kind of has that being that, you know, when they first took an interest in having a large naval force. But yeah, so uh, uh, Great Britain has heavily relied on its Navy. Um, and so we'll kind of start to see 
its navy not necessarily getting dwarfed by other navies, but they're closing that gap. So the amount of overmatch they have over other navies starts to shrink. And so we that directly correlates with their loss of influence worldwide. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I talked about how uh, the British Navy was, it was dated, um, you know, by the time that World War One comes around in the 19, early 1900s-ish. Um, but, you know, they were still a formidable force. You know, Britain, uh, going off on a little bit of a tangent, but looking at their army, you know, their army was, you know, very professional. I think it was around six divisions was a British expeditionary force. So they were, they were forced to be reckoned with. But, but their navy, that's where their power really came from, right? Britain, Britain was a naval power for, for hundreds of years, you know, the world's leading naval power for hundreds of years. And even though they were dated, I mean, people still respected them. You know, that's why the Germans spent, you know, so much effort building up their navy and modernizing it because they knew that Britain was a threat, you know, and even kind of jumping forward a little bit. Um, spoiler alert, I guess one of Germany's main goals in World War One was to basically take over Belgium because they wanted to use that territory to control the British Channel, right, to kind of keep the British Navy and uh, their merchant vessels as well kind of locked up, going back to, you know, sea lanes exactly. and control of it yeah. and things like that. So, you know, around the 1800s, Britain is facing some pushback against uh, its empire, its overseas possessions. Uh, just one example, you have the Indian National Congress, which is formed in 1885, right, the Indian uh nationalist and independence movement just a quick mention uh the empire responds either two ways to uh this pushback that they're seeing around the globe either with reform or with force right and then the empire is also expanding of course at the same time during the reign of queen victoria for example from 1837 to 1901 uh, the empire fought 230 wars winning the vast majority of them and of course we cannot cover all those because we would never get anywhere but that kind of gives you a sense of uh you know how active they are around the world by the time that world war one comes around the army did have little experience of fighting a peer or near peer foe um even though you know you had yeah. the british expeditionary force which was formed in 1900 no sorry 1912 it's formed in 1912 um you know professional force right as i was saying but they they had little experience facing a, a near peer or a peer foe like they would in world war one which is kind of i think it's uh you know we kind of see this um not necessarily that we necessarily learned the lesson the wrong way yet right but we kind of see this we can compare this to the united states right for 20 past for the 20 past, past 20 years we've been fighting uh you know, limited you know what's known as limited warfare right we're fighting essentially insurgents and things like that non-state a lot of non-state entities um uh, I mean, arguably, though, I, you know, that this new conflict uh, in Israel and the Gaza Strip kind of brings back non-state entities to the forefront of uh, the kind of like the geopolitical um, discourse now. But, you know, we're still in that midst of great power competition and the rise in that. And so the pre-war, um, you know, pre-great you know pre -great war is, is kind of similar to this, right? We're starting to see China, you know, being way more combative, way more aggressive. Uh, if you want to, if you want a good comparison, Germany would have been that to Great Britain. Um, uh, you could say the United States, but our interests kind of aligned with theirs, right, for a global outlook. And so um, that's a little bit different. And so I, it, it kind of more a slight tangent, but the the kind of reason for Great Britain's decline was was because it, it was almost like silently, you know, it almost silently happened. It was like, oh, yeah, they want to work with us on this. They want to work with us on this again. They want to work with us on this again. And so slowly but surely, the United States is now benefiting from kind of opening themselves up, right? The, Mon the Monroe Doctrine is starting to peel back, right? And so we, uh, the, the, more, the more that peeled back, the more Great Britain lost um, kind of leverage in, in certain areas of the world. Um, and you mentioned their industry even began to get dwarfed by the United States. Uh, that was one of the biggest things that uh, the allies, the Entente, that is sought to leverage during the Great War was the United States that our industry we saw that in the second world war as well too yeah i mean i think you could definitely make the uh argument that there's probably a little bit of complacency there you know when yeah. you go uh you know hundreds of years winning the vast majority of the battles you're engaged in and not really having a lot of people being able to stand up to you i mean complacency definitely sets in um you know i think a good example of that is uh the boer wars which we will get into 
uh, probably next episode. I don't think we'll have time for that today, but you know, that's just one example for sure. So I guess one of uh, one of the examples of this uh, pushback against British influence around the world we can get into is the opium wars uh, with China, you know, also known as the Anglo uh, Anglo Chinese Wars, Anglo Sino Wars, whatever you want to call them. So the first opium war is from 1839 to 1842, and the situation is China at this point uh, is under control of the Qing Dynasty right, still in empire. And China is selling tea to Britain, a lot of it. Uh, in fact, it was actually the largest supplier of tea to Great Britain. You know, the British loved their tea and China got very rich off this arrangement um, because China didn't really want anything else that Great Britain had to offer. They really wanted to trade for anything. You know, they, they wanted money. China, you know, pretty, pretty big country, pretty big empire. You know, they have a lot of their own stuff. So Money is pretty much all that they wanted, right? That's all that Britain could offer them. And London was draining its currency reserves due to this trade because they were buying so much tea. So the selling of opium that was produced in British India to the Chinese populace was the solution for the British Empire. And the Qing Dynasty was not particularly happy with this arrangement. Addiction was pretty widespread and it transcended class. You know, uh, this drug was prevalent everywhere in Chinese society. It didn't matter if you were lower class, middle class, nobility, you know, whatever. It's you were you were all uh, equally vulnerable to the touch of opium, you know, and addiction. I think a quick thing, because so, I think some people will hear opium and, you know, they'll kind of think fentanyl, they'll think heroin and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it, it same plant. But um, I, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain what opium, like what the consumption of opium was like at that time. A, a, per, a perfect example is if any of you guys watch that show, uh, Peaky Blinders, right? Um, yeah. That's what Tom, that's what the main character, Tommy, is smoking at the very beginning of the show at that, that really long, weird pipe that I've never seen before. Right? Like, like no one's ever seen like, but that was very common back then. And you know how he goes to, you know, I think his brother became an addict, right? That, that, and he would go to an opium den. Opium dens were very prevalent back then. That was the thing you'd go kind of almost like a cigar lounge, right? You'd go to smoke opium um, and there'd be, you know, uh, right up, you know, there'd be uh, cargoes there or whatever else. But, you know, it was like a place you would go to smoke opium. And that was like a, a legal thing. You would go there to do that. Um, so to just some quick context into exactly what opium was. It wasn't like everybody was out addicts on the street it didn't look like Fran san francisco necessarily but um but it, it was it was more so like like uh you just mentioned it was like high class people would do that you know they'd have parties and you know they serve opium after dinner to kind of calm everyone down and stuff like that which is really weird but you know the the uh 19th century is a weird time yeah well i mean it was it was a pretty big problem right and especially because yeah. uh you know who who was trafficking it it was it was an empire you know, exactly. it's not a it's not a couple of dudes on a street corner, you know, in Detroit yeah. or something. You know, it's it's an empire that's trafficking this into another yeah. empire, right? A failing empire. Exactly. Um, and China tried to curb this issue. You know, they outlawed uh the trade of opium, right? And they tried to you know crack down on dealers and you know smuggling routes and stuff like that. But they they didn't really have a whole lot of success, you know. And of course, you know, Britain's doing all that they can to to ramp up the increase of trafficking right because they they still do have this massive trade imbalance uh in yeah. terms of you know how much tea they're buying and how much kind of opium they're able to sell to to offset that balance you had one instance where the destruction of ten thousand barrels of opium uh, leads to an increase in tensions between china and uh, great britain and this again increases opium smuggling right the british are trying to offset this loss the death of a Chinese man at the hands of a drunk British sailor. I'm sorry, multiple drunk British sailors. I believe there's five of them. This leads to the suspension of trade with the Royal Navy ships in the area, right? So again, this is a, a separate incident, but you already have these heightened tensions, right? So here's just a, another, another layer to add to that. Seeking to break up this embargo against the British Navy, because again, they traded for like, they got their supplies from trading with Chinese exactly. merchants, right? Like rations you know water and stuff like that right it's pretty pretty important to them and they had a pretty large presence along the chinese coast right particularly in southern china and south southeastern china i should say and so they were seeking to break up this embargo and uh british ships opened fire 
uh, starting the Battle of Kowloon, right? Because they figured that was the only way they'd be able to break up this embargo. And this is what starts the First Opium War. Now, this war is mostly fought on the water with some land engagements as well. The British really dominated the Chinese over the coast course of the uh, war for the most part. There were some Chinese victories, but not a whole hell of a lot. Not many that were um, decisive, I guess I could say. The unequal Treaty of Nanjing ended the war in 1842, and China was forced to pay for the damage and destroyed British ships throughout the course of the war, as well as the 10,000 opium barrels that were burned before the war that I mentioned. And this equates to over $700 billion U.S. in today's money that they had to pay in damages to the British. And they were forced to open the country to British diplomats as well, and they also had to open five Chinese ports to British merchants, and they had to hand over Hong Kong to the British Empire, which, of course, the British held on to, I believe, 1997, I think. Yeah, which is which is a very long time, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which they, and, and so when uh, the Chinese talk about, um, uh, you know, you know the, the, all these years of humiliation, the Opium Wars is like one of the main things they're talking about. Yeah, it well, is, the it's it's yeah. the hundred years of humiliation, and I know yeah. if Sino Talk was in here, he'd be talking our heads off about it, right? <laughs> Mummy mentioned China, yeah. but um, I mean, this is what starts it, right? The first exactly. opium war. Yeah. This is what starts the hundred years of humiliation, and it mm -hmm. goes all up until the you know effective end of the Chinese Civil War in uh, nineteen forty nine. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Um. And 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 the thing about the. And you notice how fast, right, that they, they legalized. Obviously, part of the one of the, the tenets, the, one of the parts of the treaty was to legalize opium, right? Yeah. Um, which is which is kind of, I mean, it, not to use the word hilarious, but it, it's like you clearly see what the British are after, right? Um, uh, and, and so I, sometimes when people ask me, like, oh, what was the opium war about? I was like, imagine San Francisco was like, I want to clean up my streets. And the Chinese were like, no, and invaded them. Or, or like, you know, bombed them or something like that. That's kind of the deal we're talking about here, right? <laughs> but uh, obviously, you know, right, you know, China doesn't make that much off, uh, like, it's not such a staple in their economy, but this was in Great Britain. And so it was like, hey, I want to clean my streets up. I don't want a bunch of addicts running around, you know, and we were like, no, we're making money off it. Uh, not us, but um, Great Britain. Um, so I always thought that was just this weird dynamic, which it seems so bold-faced, but obviously, you know, during the time, obviously, uh, it was probably characterized a little bit differently than I than I just did. Um, yeah, I mean, this trade was obviously very important to them, again, because they were buying so much, particularly tea from China, yeah. right? and they had to offset that trade balance. And, and again, this is, you know, at the time, one of, if not the largest market in the world, right? You got to think of it that yeah. way. I mean, they're not selling, uh, they're not selling opium to, um, you know, like Canada, well, Canada's a British possession, so I should yeah, say they, that, but they, like, what, you know, like Mexico or like Cuba or something like that. Like, no, they're yeah. selling it to China, like one of the largest nations in the world by population at this point. It's a big market. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it wasn't really going to India like that either, right? So, um, which was, I would say, would probably have been like their second largest. Yeah, well, India uh, was making it. Yeah, exactly. So like, it's, it's not beginning. So not, not only is it, a, you know, a, a large... A large market to take advantage of but it's right there with india right you don't have to that, ship this yeah. thing all the way across the world you ship it just down the strait of malacca back up and you're there you're right there exactly and you so, had of course they have the ship to do it because you know yeah their merchant fleet was very large as well uh yeah. so, so they had massive navy um and to keep a massive navy supply you know they obviously had a, a merchant fleet as well but they they also had commercial merchant fleets as well which was massive and so um i think uh sometimes it's understated how much they kind of kept the empire running and alive with these merchant fleets. Um, without them, uh, the Royal Navy would not be supplied. Uh, they wouldn't be able to have, uh, you know, uh, you wouldn't be able to marshal forces quickly. And it's not even just about that. It's just about the, it's also about the trade like we're talking about right now. Um, and so you, you're not going to be able to get the opium to China if you didn't have these massive merchant fleets. Um, and so, so that also plays a large part into it, the trade. And I, I obviously, I, you know, trade is such a large part of the British Empire, right? Because, you know, people think Great Britain, it's this small, you know, and England is this like small island off the coast, you know, across the English Strait. I mean, the, the English Channel. And it's like, well, how did they, and, and it's purely through their, their mastery of the seas. Um, and it can really be chalked up to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, the British pound at this point was, was the global standard, right? And you don't yeah. you don't get to that point just by uh 
kicking everybody's ass in a ton of wars, right? I mean, obviously that helps a lot, but you got to sell a lot of stuff around the world too, right? If you're not selling anything, you're not, your yeah. currency isn't going to be the global standard. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, just look at the US dollar today, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and like, uh, you know, people tell things like bricks and things like, like uh, a good example of what, to, you know, how to see, you know, kind of how the US not necessarily subverted. I mean, obviously they did, there was some type of economic warfare going on between the US and Great Britain at the time. But if you people kind of tell BRICS as, oh, you know, BRICS was kind of announced, um, you know, years ago and it was supposed to be this huge thing. It took more than a, it took almost a century for the United States to kind of build up that, that um, build up economically, domestically, and then kind of spread out its tendrils to where it was able to subvert the, the pound. Um, that took a century, arguably longer, right? That probably didn't really cement it really until, uh, uh, maybe the interwar period, obviously, right? You know, have these Europe is now greatly in debt to the United States, but not necessarily as much as uh, World War II, and so that's where it really cemented. It's like a century and a half almost of uh, of hard work, if you could call it that. And so these things don't happen quickly. Um, and it, we went off a bit on a tangent. I guess we're in the mid the interwar period of the uh, opium wars, right? Yeah. But, so I mean, you know, not a whole lot happens in the in the years in between the first and second, right? Um, Fast forwarding to 1856, that's when the second opium war begins, and that goes until 1860. Now, by the 1850s, Britain still had a large trade deficit with China, again, due to the trade of tea. And the only thing that kept that gap from widening even more was the opium trade. It was still growing, don't get me yeah. wrong, but you, you know, it would have been a lot bigger if they weren't trading opium to the Chinese populace. Yeah. And then additionally, uh, they wanted to expand their power and influence along the Chinese coast, right? Access to more markets and things like that. In Hong Kong, Britain, again, it's a British possession at this point. They begin registering Chinese ships that are involved in commerce with China. So these ships are crewed by Chinese men, but they're flying the British flag, right? One of those ships, which is known as the Arrow, was previously a pirate ship. And that ship had been sold and re-registered at one point. It was flying the British flag now. And in 1856, that ship was captured by Chinese forces in the city of Canton, which the Chinese at this point believed the era was still engaged in piracy, despite it, again, flying the British flag at this point. This is mm -hmm. also right in the middle of the uh, Taiping Rebellion, right? So there's there's a lot of a lot going on in China, right? So that definitely contributes to some of the paranoia happening. Now, despite the objection of parliament, the prime minister at the time, who was uh, Lord uh, Palmerston, approved an attack on Canton along the Pearl River because of this incident with the arrow. This is also despite the Chinese offering to release the ship, right? During this attack, the governor of the city, uh, Yi Mingchen, was captured and he was actually sent to British India. So at this point, the two countries are on the brink of war again. Palmerston went on the offensive, and he actually brings the French along with him as well. You know, the two are uh, historically enemies, but they're allying because uh, France wanted to take advantage of what was going on, right? They wanted to get in on the markets and things like that. In the opening years of the Second Opium War, naval combat was, again, the more common type of encounter. There was a ceasefire in 1858 that paused the fighting for about a year but in 1859, there were some disputes between local Chinese forces and British forces along the coast that eventually leads to the British and the French marching on Beijing with underwhelming resistance from the Chinese, right? And in 1860, the Convention of Peking brought an end to the war. You had three different treaties going on, right? There's a lot of players, the U.S., Russia as well, um, and then, of course, France and Britain. But again, this is our britain focus episodes we're not going to get into all of that china yeah. was officially uh reopened to the opium trade so this was a condition in the first opium war in the aftermath right the uh the unequal treaty that ended the war they were supposed to reopen the country to opium they didn't so they do that at the end of this war right so now it's official and then uh, Kowloon Peninsula and Stonecutters Island were also given to Britain and they were incorporated into Hong Kong. So you have some more uh, territorial concessions as well. And that's that's where the Second Opium War ends off. Yeah. And, and so the, the interesting thing about that, uh, just to go back a bit, you mentioned um, 
you know, kind of increased interoperability or more so just cooperation and normalization of relations between the French and the British, right? So these are, it's it's less than half a century earlier that the Napoleonic Wars were raging. And so this is really important kind of normalization of relations between France and Great Britain, because this is, this would be, I can't even think of two nations today that are kind of seen as these arch enemies. It's really hard to explain how, I mean, this is for hundreds of years, they've been fighting um, large scale, you know, wars uh, um, against each other. And, and the ironic thing is, right, they're both across like a small channel. And <laughs> so they've been fighting these wars for so long. Um, obviously the hundred war, uh, hundred years war was between them, obviously the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, 30 years war, the French played a part. I mean, anytime there was like, civil strife going on in England, France was kind of feeding it and vice versa. Um, and, and so this is a very big thing. Um, and so when we talk about the Crimean War um, in the next episode, that's that's going to play a big part is this kind of increased international cooperation that we're going to see from the from the great powers, um, uh, which kind of brings back this normal theme of, uh, uh, we mentioned this before as well, and uh, I believe in the other part, right? When Russia rises up, it was kind of the thing that you did. They would all kind of get together and beat Russia back down and be like, okay, and then we'll get back to fighting each other, you know? So, um, but, but yeah, that's just a quick a tidbit on that. Um, one thing I did want to highlight, uh, you, and so this is kind of go back and it kind of lasts, uh, kind of goes over the whole time. It's kind of the women's suffragette movement in, in great, specifically in Great Britain. Um, so we, we have arguably, it, it started as early as directly after the Napoleonic Wars. We have a couple authors who are writing some books, um, a plan for parliamentary reform is a big one, I believe. Um, uh, kind of just introducing the idea of increased women's rights, uh, their role in elections and things like this, and also their role in the the populace's right to you know have a uh, a say in how they're governed, right? And so, as the the general, the layman has a right to say, you know, kind of how we're governed. Uh, I'm voting in elections now. I'm not just a peasant. I don't I don't just till the land till I die, and then. My son does the same thing, and their son, and their son, and their son. Um, you know, my life kind of means something. We, people now have the freedom to now start asking other questions, and so this is kind of where we see the women's suffragette movement come in into play. Um, so I'm, I'm going to skip a couple years now, well, a good amount of years, and kind of skip to like 1850, 1851. We have the Sheffield Female Political Association. Now, this is known as kind of one of the first um, uh, groups that was. Uh, made essentially to, uh, I'm trying to compare it to one uh, in, in the United States, but I, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but it's the first group for women's rights and suffragette movement, essentially. Um, and so, you know, they submit a couple of petitions and stuff, but the, the important thing is that they submitted to the House of Lords. Uh, for those who don't know, that's uh, uh, one of the houses in Parliament. Um, they, have, they have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, so that would be the equivalent to us. Uh, the suffragettes, you know, submitting petitions, petitions in the United States, like the House of Representatives, I believe that's, oh, the con uh, Senate would probably be more uh, on par with the House of Lords, um, the representative, House of Reps being kind of more so the House of Commons. Um, and so uh, we have a lot of those going through. Uh, obviously, there were some things that happened in England during the time, lots of wars going on. And so this kind of, as this exacerbates the economy, we have strikes rising as well. Um, and so as strikes rise, we kind of see the women, uh, they, they play a big part in the strike. So while they're not necessarily striking from their jobs, they play a big part in the strike. So they're, they're going to these meetings, they're going uh, with their husbands, they're making the signs, things like that, right? Um, they're making the signs. So obviously, you know, they, they become more emboldened to do things. I'm not saying they necessarily did, they shouldn't have been emboldened. Sometimes emboldened means people get like bold and, you know, kind of they get, you know, they get balls and they shouldn't be doing it. But this is a, uh, <laughs> it, that's not the connotation I'm trying to give the word but yeah they were emboldened to kind of make you know do their own movement and realize hey well we, we have rights too right and so uh you know they start doing you know there's the municipal franchise act there's the um the conservative primrose league we start to see a lot of other things we see the women's uh franchise league local and then acts passed after that the local government act as well um so that women could vote in local elections only so they're not voting for prime ministers or anything like that well prime ministers voted for it by the by the body, the parliament, I believe, but um, they're not voting for uh, House of Lords and House of Commons. That's not happening um, yet. So there's only local elections. Um, skip a skip a kind of a while. So 1894, um, 
I mean, seven. We have the uh, National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, um, NUWSS. It's an interesting uh, NWUS, noose. Um, and so that's led by Milson Fawcett. Uh, and uh, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst is another name that comes up. And so Susan B. Anthony is something that's kind of synonymous. It's, it's a similar figure in, in, in American history um, we see there. Um, and so and it, it, it kind of i don't want to say it stalemates the the movement after that um but we start to see incremental gains until until eventually they're kind of on par with the men. Obviously, there's there's uh, certain uh, stops and blocks put in place uh, so they can only do certain things. They can only vote in certain elections, um, uh, and 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 our, but by the by the end of World War One uh, and and a war period is when they really get there. You know, the the twenties, thirties, um, and then the forties uh, is where they. It's, it's not until then that they really get the right to to fully vote and have a full say in, in the governance of the the, the people. Um, and, and that's that's about it, what I have for the women's suffragette movement. Arguably not as extensive as the US suffragette movement, but it, it happened. I think it's important because it it shows, uh, it sheds some light on what was going on socially in the country and how that kind of not only exacerbated the economic situ situation in the country, but it also um, played a part in, uh, you know, how people fought and things like that. Um, we can get into PALS battalions and other things like that later. That'll be during the war, but, um, the social situation in the country played a large part to how the government treated it. Um, and so just quick tangent, palace battalions was something that uh, the government would do, you know, kind of, you, we kind of saw this type of people fought up to now. Civil War is a big thing, like, oh, where are you from? From the Pennsylvania something, right? You fought with people in your village and things like that. Obviously that kind of came backfired on them because the heavy attritional nature of the war, you get a whole village wiped out. They'd have no men. There'd be no men coming back from the war. So obviously that changed after that. But it was also a way to kind of book have people uh, join up and fight. Um, they, they, it's, it's a certain way because people weren't necessarily very trusting of the government. A lot of the things we talked about, strikes and things like that, uh, the way that in the treatment in the industry and how they had to normalize things like unions and things for, for better workers' rights and other things like that. Um, mainly safety in the workplace was a big thing. Um, uh, even, uh, and this, this sounds kind of like shot out, but, um, agreed upon you know pay raises for for child workers and things like that um which now sounds so like draconian right um but <laughs> like, you know the unions were sitting here bargaining over the rates of pay for, for like kids like eight-year-olds and ten-year-olds but i mean that was still a step forward from you know making nothing and your your kid is dying you know kids are dying left and right so you know increased safety in the workplace is a big thing but all, and wages are the two biggest things right um you know, you know, now we see unions fight for things sometimes like, you know, you know, should should we should every single office have a coffee machine or something like that. And I, I'm not trying to drum down, you know, dumb down the, the what unions do. But, you know, they didn't have the luxury of that back then. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have break rooms and stuff, you know, just, you know, getting home safe at night and being able to pay for, you know, you know, your food at night was a big thing back then. So we, these are small steps um, that we start to see. And uh, that was a bit of a tangent on the PALS battalion. But. It was a way to kind of appease people to get them to, you know, to join up because, hey, my friend's joining up. You know, I don't trust the government and I don't want to go for, fight another one of their wars. I mean, look how they treat us in the workplace. Right. But, hey, my friend's going. Everyone in the village is going. You don't want to look like that worse. Right. Um, I think we all know. And I believe it's the, the show The Pacific. How um, was it Sledge, I believe, who uh, he had the heart murmur um, and he everyone else was had already gone off to fight and he was pissed off and he thought he felt like less of a man essentially because he wasn't able to go you know it's yeah. kind of that peer pressure thing you know so just yeah this the social situation in the country was not very good at the beginning of the war um and so what, what you mentioned before that you know they had a professional force right um large part of that was because they wanted to have a professional force but another part of it was you know no one's everyone wasn't jumping at to go join the the, the the royal navy or the the armed forces or stuff like that um uh and so you know they got to provide incentive and for that essentially yeah yeah they had, they had no 
uh, conscription at this point, right? So they, they yeah, had to exactly. rely on that all that they all volunteer to. professional force. Yeah. Um, we, we, you know, we kind of see that. We, I think we kind of see, you know, the United States struggling that with, you know, we're struggling with that, with things like that now. The, the uh, domestic perception of the armed forces is, is kind of tainted right now, I think. And then also in within the force, right? You kind of see how they're being treated. And I can't necessarily speak to this. How how was Great Britain treating the guys in, in the force then? Um, but you know, we we see problems like this, like the the perception of the force, you know, kind of getting tainted a lot of ways sometimes, and so people. Uh, or reticent. Also, it's just the social issues going on now. You know, people just don't want to join up now. Um, I'm not saying the government should, you know, uh, enact conscription. I don't think that will only exacerbate the issue right now. But, you know, generally when uh, dom- domestically you have social unrest, your forces, you know, around the world, or your armed forces are going to be kind of strained. Um, and so we saw that in Great Britain as well, pre-war. Um, Arguably, we saw that pre-Second World War as well. You know, no one wanted to go fight another war again. Um, and so. Yeah, I mean, not to not to go on too much of a tangent, but, you know, there's always kind of a question as to as to whether you should have a conscript force or, or an all-volunteer force, right? Well, no, and, you know, I mean, looking at the U.S. military, you kind of brought that up, but, you know, there's it's probably not going to happen, you know, but there's been talks of, you know, the military is facing a serious recruitment crisis, right, uh, for the past couple of years, missing the recruiting numbers by tens of thousands. And, you know, I, should we go back to drafting people to kind of make up for those numbers? But then on the other hand, uh, you have the Israeli military right now, which is obviously, you know, they're kind of deep in it, right? They're in the middle of a war. Um, and technically speaking, everybody in Israel, once they turn 18, they have to serve in the armed forces, right? That's always what we're told. But at this point, there's been so many exceptions made, right? Mm -hmm. That less than 50% of the country serves in the military, which for for a country where allegedly everybody's supposed to serve, I mean, you know, it's kind of a big discrepancy there. So now they're having uh, the talks over whether they should switch to an all-volunteer force. So it's kind of, again, going off on a tangent, Right. That's not but, what we're here to talk about today, but it, yeah, it's a question but it that's a, always being had. Right. It's right? Definitely a conversation good. that's always being had. Yeah. But it's definitely a good tangent, though, because like I'm going to I'm going to lengthen this tangent a little bit more because. Is that possibly indicative of other nations who have similar models like that? Finland comes to mind. Right. If Finland were to get into it with Russia, are we going to find that they kind of become lax? Now, something tells me that because of threat. Well, but you could kind of say the same thing for Israel. The threat's been so existential for so long, too. Have they gotten complacent? Has Finland gotten complacent? Not necessarily in securing their borders. I'm not saying uh, similar to uh, 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 what we saw in the Gaza Strip, but complacent in, you know, hey, when I do this call-up thing, because, we, you know, we see all these numbers about, hey, calling up this and this. If we, we want to compare this to World War One, uh, right, we kind of saw, you know, Great Britain is not necessarily well-known on as ground forces. I think, uh, you know, Napoleon you know, kind of to the set things to the effect of, right, you know, I can beat them at anywhere on land, but our Navy is useless, right? Um, and, and so uh, that's, I think that's why Great Point had, the, you know, this all-volunteer force as well. It was very important for them. But, you know, like we were talking about Israel, it, could this stuff be indicative for it, stuff that could be true for the Finnish military and other militaries from the world that have this model as well when it comes to readiness? Um, and, and so we always see readiness becoming, a, you bring this back to World War One. Um, we always see readiness becoming a big thing, you know, readiness and recruitment as tensions rise, but not only tension, just great power competition in general, right? You're going to be thinking now more, wait, how ready am I? Should uh, this kind of economic competition with this nation pop off in a kinetic warfare? You know, am I ready for this? And so we start to see that conversation being had way, way more, um, kind of like we are now, you know, because I feel like recruitment wasn't necessarily a problem, right? until we needed the recruits. And so we're starting to see like, hey, we have this these inc- this massive increase in missions. And this this is not just talking about World War One. This is talking about modern times too, but I'm just going to use kind of, uh, you know, general terms, but we have a massive increase in missions around the world globally, not only just globally, but uh, in, in local regions as well that we have to maintain. And we want to fulfill these missions. We don't have the force to do it. Um, and so, but there's not this influx of people coming in to fulfill, to help us fulfill these missions. Uh, 
and and so I think Great Britain was kind of seeing that, and so that's where do you weigh uh, this? It's a big quality over quantity argument, right? Um, it, what's better, and so you got to find that perfect balance. Um, uh, and I think we got so shocked for the Vietnam War and things like that, or um, and I, I don't know what necessarily shocked Great Britain into that. It could go as far back as um, you know, having peasants fight in your wars and some of the battles they lost during the Hundred Years War were largely attributed to having this, the, the bulk of their force was non-professional, right? You would have this core, you had this core force of knights and it's more force of cavalry with them. You'd have a bunch of men at arms and the rest were like peasants that you gave swords and shields. Um, and so that maybe, you know, these kind of losses shocked them into having this professional force because the British were known to fight very well on the land, but they never were there in numbers, right? And I think that's why British, the British uh, in, a, in this period before, the, about the Hundred Years before, the war was so focused on, you know, I talk about allies and partners all the time, you know, the United States leveraging their allies and partners. And you're laughing too, I'm laughing too as well, because, you know, you know everybody who, you know, I work with and stuff knows that I, I say allies and partners all the time. But it's, it's really a big thing when you're, when you're a nation who may not necessarily, and this is even more so for Great Britain than the United States, right? Because look at, you know, I mentioned this before, they're just a small island, but they control so much. And this literally leverage, 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 leverage. And then also their Navy, you know, their big Navy, their, their huge Navy was a big part of it. But it's also leveraging your allies and partners in the region. Sometimes your allies and partners, I'm putting quotes on this, aren't necessarily allies and partners, but they're kind of like your stooge, essentially, right? As we saw in Great Britain. Or, yeah, or your, your colonial co possessions. Your, yeah, your colonial sure. possessions, exactly. We don't say that now, but, you know, but you want people say, oh, this is a satellite state, you know, this, that, and things like that. How about other nations around the world of the United States? Well, they were allies and partners, but are we greatly benefiting from, you know, these relationships? And so Great Britain was well known to do that. Um, they, and they didn't necessarily have the force, though, to maintain that. If you really look at how the size of their force, that's why you saw them shipping uh, troops in from India in the in during the Great War. Um, right. Uh, I, I think it's kind of hard to understand for the United States because we never really did that. Right. It wasn't like we were going to. Um, uh, it wasn't like we were shipping, you know, you know, uh, guys from the Afghani, you know, uh, army, you know, to bolster our force in Europe. You know, <laughs> we, we weren't necessarily doing that. But but that's kind of how Great Britain kept a hold on on there and kept leverage going on for so long. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, you know, this British expeditionary force is all all professional, right? All volunteer. But yeah. they, again, as we were talking about, they did have their colonial possessions, right? You know, they had they had India, they had Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Salone, which is now Sri Lanka, you know, and elsewhere. Um, yeah. Just kind of fast forwarding a little bit. We're not going to talk about this today, but in the Boer War, um, with, when the British, the British Expeditionary Force, or well, it wasn't the BAF back then, but you know, the yeah, British, yeah. British regulars, right, actually from Great Britain, and they got mm -hmm. their asses kicked in the Second Most, World War, uh, then Britain yeah. had to start, I mean, flowing reinforcements into the area from these places, from Canada. India, mm -hmm. Salone, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and elsewhere, um, by by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, right? And you saw some historical figures like serve in that war, right? I mean, Winston Churchill was, I want to say, a correspondent with the British Army at that point, right? Yeah. In, uh, yeah. in South Africa, and then even I just found this out when I was doing the research for this episode. Gandhi actually served in that war. He was with the British yes, Ambulance Corps. He was. He was in the British Ambulance Corps. And it, I think I learned that when I watched the movie Gandhi in middle school. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, if you haven't seen the movie Gandhi, you need to go see it for all, for all our listeners. Um, it's, it's a pretty good movie. Um, it's, it's very long, so definitely uh, make sure you have the time to do it. It's kind of Lord of the Rings-esque in length. But yeah, yeah, Gandhi, Gandhi filmed, and uh, not filmed, was in the, uh, served in that conflict, uh, not combatively though, but um. Yeah, so so uh, which is a, a, an interesting thing though to talk about as well, right? It, a lot of these colonial possessions. If you were in this colony in your military age, of uh, 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 military age, um, and, and male, right? Uh, generally, or more times than not, you were serving in the British armed forces or their their uh, colonial armed forces um, and things like that. Um, but and but they still kept that that proficiency right, and they still kept the professionalism of the force though, because uh, I think one thing that was a big thing that we see mentioned in both world wars was like oh the Indian force you know the Indian, uh, troops you know they they got these guys fought tooth and nail or something like that or the guys from, or the guys uh, the Gurkhas is a perfect example yeah. actually 
like the Gurkhas, these guys are well known for, for the entirety of their existence for just being badass, right? Um, and so it wasn't like because we brought in these colonial troops, they suck. No, we brought them in because they can fight just as hard as our as our mainland guys. Um, but you know, it just takes long for them to get here. Um, obviously, this is before planes and stuff. Where you know, you, you didn't they didn't have uh, marine expeditionary units or anything like that. Who knows? It would be really interesting to see Great Britain with uh, with Muse uh, in the eighteen hundreds. That would be just crazy because you know they had they had the. Uh, Obviously not aircraft, but they had the transportation for them, right? You know, they, they never really, that was nothing they really ever implemented. Obviously, ships weren't that big back then. Um, and I think that another big thing, not to go off on any tangents, but I think that's kind of, we're kind of in a tangent space right now. Um, but uh, is the 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 revolutionary uh, change and, and the massive change in naval, not only naval warfare, but just naval designs and just ship design in that hundred years from the Napoleonic Wars, right? Uh, warfare hadn't really changed. Naval warfare hadn't really changed for like 300 plus years prior to that. Um, you know, you kind of had the intro, the, the next time the, before that, the biggest time where it changed was obviously the introduction of um, cannons, you know, right, to, to naval warfare. But after that, it doesn't really change much. The ships get bigger, they get a little sleeker, you know, they, they look a little cooler, if you want to call it that. It doesn't really change at all. And then uh, obviously you have the Civil War. Um, uh, you, you could go before that, you know, t you know, start building uh, them with like hard oak wood. Obviously, the USS Constitution comes to mind and things like that. But, you know, then they had, you know, plating them with metal. This became a big thing, right? Plating the underside with metal. That was another big thing. And then I believe the first European ironclad or iron or iron built ship was a French ship, the Daphne. But I could be wrong. Go do your research, guys. Don't take that. for Don't take my word for that. But um. I used to be, I, you know, I was a big, huge um, Civil War geek. And so I, I was go looking at the Navy and stuff. And so that, that ship had come up as one of the first European ones. And then we see the Dreadnought. And this is really right where the change happens, right? When the, the introduction to the Dreadnought were all iron ships, um, all, and all steel built ships, uh, all metal, that is. Um, and so that's why things like the White Fleet are able to happen, right? Because now there's now this big difference between the great power navies and what what we what people like to call the global south, which I don't think they called it that at the time, um, but other 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 navies. Um, and a, a good example is right the Opium Wars, right? The British Navy was able to the Royal Navy was able to decimate the Chinese Navy because some some of these ships were literally just DAOs, D H O W. That is, um, which are they're, they're like small wooden ships that arguably prior to the war were probably fishing vessels, like large fishing vessels, like kind of hubs. Uh, for, for smaller fishing vessels and did you know they threw a couple cannon on them and stuff like that um but this is this big split and so now we see great power being able to exercise even more power and more influence in the region because it's like hey you have wooden ships still like your cannonballs will literally bounce off of my ship there's nothing you're going to do to sink me obviously the introduction of torpedoes is a big thing we start to see as well um and and, and mines is a huge thing um because it before you know obviously all, all metal ships reign supreme uh, they reign supreme, and then you know you start to have things that can kill them. But that is another big thing to mention, though. So I went off a bit of a tangent there, though. No, you're uh, good. That's what we do. Well, yeah, I think we're I think we're just about good, man. I think uh, next yeah. episode we are going to pick it up at the Crimean War. War. So we'll start yeah. it off there for uh, for the second part of Great Britain. Yeah. And we'll touch on, so, and the thing with the Crimean War, the Crimean War is going to encompass, I mean, short, everything but maybe this women's suffragette movement, everything that we just talked about, it's going to encompass all these things. It's kind of like a, it's kind of almost, you could call it like a culminate, like like the culminating conflict that really kind of set the tone for what things was, how this, you know, things that were going to go on. I, I know people call the Russo-Japanese uh, War, which happens in 1905-6, um, uh, they they sometimes call it World War Zero, but argue, I I like to think of crime, the Crimean War is at the actual World War Zero. Um, and, I mean, arguably we can keep going back and saying you know oh well the Napoleonic Wars included, but this was the a war that was a modern war. Um, it's before the Franco-Prussian War, right? But the, it was the attritional race of the killing, and the the commanders beginning. Oh well, obviously they weren't realizing enough that we can't just. You can't just make gig, um, reach an objective by just throwing forces at it because the technology and the 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 weapons we now have 
can stop said force from taking right? you can now deter a force because of the weapons you have you can't just keep throwing you know bayonet charges are not as successful anymore right um uh artillery is another big thing we mentioned that uh, i believe in the pre-war german uh, uh pre-war germany as well so all these things we're talking about industry economy even the social aspects of it um the, the navy's gonna be a, a big part to it uh, the economic uh warfare going on uh during the crimean war against russia so all these things are going to kind of get uh, amalgamated into one in the Crimean War. And I think it's a great place to start off the next episode. Yeah, a lot of people argue that this is the first modern war. And you talked about, um, you know, some of the modern uh, weaponry and tactics that were used. But it's also actually the first war that is photographed, interestingly yes. enough, yeah. right? So that that contributes to why so many <laughs> people call it the first so, modern war. And so before before we start getting comments on on uh, on all the posts we make about this, oh, it wasn't the first war that was photographed. The Franco-Prussian War was the Franco-Prussian War. Just I'm going to make the correction before. Well, not a correction because you're correct. It is the first war that photographed. I believe the Franco-Prussian War. Before anyone says it was the first war that the combat was photographed. Right? Everyone knows that grainy photo where you can't yeah, tell yeah. the butcher or a guy, but and they're out in the field. Um, about 100 yards apart or something like that. That's the first war that combat was filmed. But the first time you had like war correspondence, not just somebody coming up, coming on the battlefield after the war. We saw a lot of that in Gettysburg, right? And things like that. But this is still after the, this is still after the Crimean War, right? Gettysburg. Um, uh, well, I meant civil, this U.S. Civil War. And Gettysburg is just one battle. But um, yeah, so this is definitely, this is the first war that was photographed. And so this is another big thing that uh, the social aspect, like I just mentioned before, right? People can now follow along, right? It's not like, oh, I got to wait for like 25 days to find out if my, my son may be dead or alive because we won the battle. So a better chance he's alive. Just hope it's not a period victory, right? Um, yeah, and you know yeah. what? I actually believe it was the first war that used uh, telegraphs as well. I didn't know that. I believe I, so, I yeah. And just for frame of reference, obviously, this is what we're going to start off with next episode. But the Cr Crimean War begins in uh, 1853. So this is actually even before the Second Opium War. Yeah, exactly. Which kind of brings that whole aspect of we were talking about the size of the of the infrastructure and the, the transportation uh, infrastructure, at least, and the, the fleet of, of Great Britain. But also, and the being and then being able to call on hundreds of thousands of colonial forces. I remember that they had just under four hundred fifty or just over four hundred fifty million global inhabitants in the British Empire. Right. This is and so just think about how many of these people were military age fighting males. Right. <laughs> so the amount of forces that you can call upon, like you can be embroiled in multiple wars at the same time. And I I think even the United States hasn't seen this type of supremacy yet. And you know it'll it'd be nice. I mean. Short, short of the, you know, all the horrible things the British Empire did, I think people understand what I'm saying when I said it would definitely be nice to reach that point, right? This type of zenith of influence, you could call it, but we're not even near that at this point, I don't think. The type of influence, arguably, this certain things would have, have to happen, but the, sometimes it's hard to understand the influence the British Empire had at the time, um, being able to call on that many people. You can, you can fight, you can fight a war, decimate somebody here in the world and then go somewhere else and fight a massive war, a great power war, essentially at the same time and in between two other wars. Mind you, there's all these other conflicts going on at the same time as well. Um, and so it's, 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 it's really hard to understand, even for me, you know, and it, to really how big, uh, not necessarily big the British Empire was, but the, the amount of influence they had and the forces and the, the, the amount of violence that they could call upon, you know, bring down upon someone uh, rather quickly for that for the time period as well, right? Because you had know, the idea of having such a large navy, right? You don't know where a British navy ship is at any given time, right? So you don't want to do ne anything necessarily because you could have a bunch of Royal Marines landing on your beach, uh, which is kind of essentially uh, the, the concept of the, the U.S. Uh, military expeditionary units, right? This It's kind of the same concept, definitely a smaller scale, right? Uh, they don't have any U.S.S. batons or HMS batons, right? They didn't have any of those. Uh, who knows what they would have done with an amphibious landing ship, but... Uh, <laughs> Who knows? All right. Well, yeah, man, I think that is a, a good place to stop it. And then we'll start the next episode with the Crimean War. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was, it was great talking. Definitely. Had, I had a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. And we'll uh, get this out soon and then we'll get together soon for the next one to record. Awesome. All right. We'll see you around. Okay, everybody, I want to thank you for listening to that episode and supporting this podcast. Of course, all your support means a lot to me. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode. Again, part two is going to be coming soon. And then after that, we will move on to another player in the First World War. You can find this podcast on our favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We are also on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again, Patreon, Substack, or Ko-Fi. You can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. That is all I have for you guys right now. We'll see you soon.